Saints, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Uh, this morning we are considering uh, the remaining verses of chapter 11, at least half of the chapter of the, the chapter this morning. I'd like to begin by sharing with you two different examples. The first is by a woman named Lisa. Lisa suffered tragic deaths. Deaths of her brother and then the death of her mother before she turned 21. These deaths left her, as she put it, full of guilt, full of anger and pain, full of sorrow and frustration. Looking for love, she entered into a series of relationships. These relationships left her as a single parent trying to raise three kids. She had a history of abuse and violence and also wrestled with drugs and other substances. One day, while walking home from work, Lisa stopped to chat with a woman who was working in her garden. The conversation led to Lisa being invited to church by this woman. Eventually, Lisa turned to Christ and joined the church. Through this woman working in the gardens, witness and testimony. Another example. On the other side of the spectrum, in communist Soviet Union, a man named Sergei Kordakov was an agent with the KGB. He was also assigned to be a persecutor of Christians. A woman named Natasha was arrested for witnessing for Christ and her punishment for her crime was that she was brutally abused in a kind of rotating way by all of the officers within or under Sergei's command. Sergei overlooked, oversaw, and watched this woman Natasha beat, beaten to a pole, if you will, until she was eventually released from prison. Each time, because she was arrested three times, that she was released from her arrest, it was under the pretense that she would not even think about testifying or witnessing for Christ ever again. And after the third time of being arrested, Sergei noticed Natasha's resolve. She was not going to stop witnessing for Christ. She was unwilling to be silenced in her witness for Christ. This kind of unrelenting witnessing, this unwillingness to be silenced was noticed by Sergei. But he also noticed something else. That each time that she was abused, she was patient under her abuse. She did not fight back. She endured it. This kind of witness to Sergei was used by God. To cause Sergei to find out more about who is this God that this woman Natasha is witnessing for. And what would cause such a woman to be both unrelenting, unwilling to be silenced, and also patient and humble in suffering. He eventually turned to Christ and left the KGB and also deflected to the United States. Left the Soviet Union altogether. And he wrote a book later called The Persecutor. And in that book, 
he expressed his sincere apology to Natasha and also his sincere thanks to her for her witness because it was her witness that inspired her, inspired her that God used to cause her to turn to Christ. The book is also known as Forgive Me, Natasha. Two extremely different examples of conversion, are they not? One, a casual interaction that you and I might have on a regular basis. You meet your local checker or your your local uh, um, checker even maybe at the, the bank, the grocery store. And before you know it, you're in a spiritual conversation with them. Before you know it, you're inviting them or even encouraging, encouraging them in the Lord and inviting them to come to church. It's something that we experience very regularly. It's the kind of witness that we should be having on a normal basis. The other, a kind of witness that takes place under extreme conditions. Being commanded to be silent, but refusing to cease your witness, even if it means it will cost you your life. Dear Saints, I ask you this morning, why are you saved? What is the reason that you and I have been brought from death to life? For what purpose? I think that we, all of us, could think of a number of reasons why we have, at least from Scripture that has been revealed, why we have been brought from death to life, why God has saved us. We can think of many reasons why, from Scripture, why God has done so. But of all the reasons, and there are many, I'm sure, at least one of them is this. You and I have been saved so that you and I can be a witness for Christ. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will, Christ says, you will be my witnesses. Both in Jerusalem and in Judea. And as far as the remotest part of the earth. To the ends of the earth. You will be his witnesses. In Revelation chapter 1, Christ is called a faithful witness. And we, his church, we are called to follow his example and to be faithful witnesses. In these, the last days. I do believe... That the point of chapter 11 verses 3 through 14 is simply this. You and I are called to be faithful witnesses for Christ. I appreciate so much what Pastor Isaiah prayed this morning in that this sermon and sermons going on in Revelation would not be running commentaries. But they would be a message from God, from our Christ, inspired by God the Holy Spirit. That they would be a word from God. To his church, you, about how we are to live as we are anticipating the return of our Christ. You will remember that in the first two verses, the church is comforted. They are comforted to know that that God's presence is with them. God is establishing his presence among us. He has established his presence among us. We are the end time community. Remember that the end times, the last days began when Christ rose from the dead. We have been living in the last days since Christ rose from the dead. His presence is with us and will be with us. And it will not stop. It will not change. His presence will not change in spite of increasing opposition. In spite of persecution from unbelievers, God has promised that He has established us. That He will, we, we, he will be with us and He sends us out to be His witnesses. Again, for what end? For what end is God with us? Why has God called us to Himself? Is the only purpose of John's vision to comfort us when we are persecuted? 
Is that all? Uh, is that the only reason why this has been written? The enemies of God who oppose God in His church will one day be judged. And God will receive glory for it. Yes. But I believe these verses are to encourage us to be bold in our witness. Uh, not just to accept the fact that you and I will be persecuted. But in, in light of persecution, to not be silenced. To not shrink back. To be emboldened in your witness for Christ because God has promised that He is with you. I believe that the verses remaining in this chapter, they provide for us comfort and encouragement to know that because God is with us and that we will never be absent of His presence, therefore we can be bold in our witness for Christ. In spite of intense opposition from the world, we are called to be faithful witnesses in the earth. Therefore, the first two verses, they are crucial for understanding verses 3 through 14. Uh, They are not separate. They're they're not random pieces being put together. Verses 1 and 2 are foundational for why we give our witness and do so so boldly and so faithfully. It is because God is with us. So then, with God's help, let us consider four points this morning, morning concerning the faithful witness of the church. Number one, the identity of the two witnesses. The identity of the two witnesses. This is found in verses 3 and 4. Three and four. I'm not going to read them again. I'll just quote where they're coming from. In verse 1, God assures His people of His presence. In verse 2, God assures His people that we will be persecuted. In verse 1, they are the temple of God. They are in the very presence of God before the altar. They, they are the ones who are under the altar, offering themselves as a living sacrifice to God. They are worshiping there. And God has promised that He will never leave them. In verse 2, they will suffer. They are the holy city. Physically, they will be trampled upon. And this will last for a period of time. We learned that three and a half years is symbolic of a a time period, of a, a frame time, a time frame of ministry that will end when God decrees that it will end. But it will be a time frame. And then we come to the third verse. And we hear or see that God has said that He will grant authority to His two witnesses. Can I do it here? Yes. God will give the nations, that is the unbeliever, authority to trample on or persecute the holy city, the church of God. We learned that last week that our souls are protected, but our bodies are not. That we have no... uh, You cannot give someone one verse and say, based upon this verse, you will physically be healed. Not the case. Instead, we have this comfort... That though our bodies will perish, and though our bodies may also even be trampled underfoot by unbelievers, our souls will not be lost. That we are secured in Christ. That we will never lose our salvation if we are in Christ. And that is, I think, more encouraging. But also we have the encouragement of this that we'll find at the very end of this, or very end of these verses, that our bodies will also be restored one day. That we, that our bodies will be vindicated one day. Vindicated from the effects of sin. Praise be to God for that as well. That when we are sick, that we can look forward to a a time when our bodies will be restored and there will be no more sickness in our bodies. We won't be fatigued by sicknesses that come upon us. Uh, We won't be uh, uh, slowed down by sicknesses that come upon us. Instead, sickness and death will be destroyed once and for all. Moving on. God gives the church strength to persevere. 
persevere in our faith. To be a faithful witness for Christ in spite of the opposition that you and I most will most assuredly face. Now, what are the witnesses given authority to do? We'll talk about this in the second point. But they are given authority to prophesy for the exact amount of time that God has said the church will be persecuted. 100 or 1,260 days or three and a half years. It's the same number. We learned again last week that it is not a literal number. But that as with all numbers in Revelation, it is meant to be symbolic. It's a time frame, a time of testing. It's a time of the church age from the resurrection of Christ until Christ returns. That's the time frame. These two prophetic witnesses are given authority to prophesy concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you will remember at the end of the 10th chapter, John was called to, to prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. That means God is sending John to the nations to do what? To prophesy. That is to be a witness concerning what? Uh, concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To call all men to turn to Christ and to believe upon Him. John is called to be a prophet to all the peoples. And now God calls these two witnesses to do the exact same thing that John is called to do. To prophesy. To bring this message of the book. The unveiling of Jesus Christ to the nations. And here, these witnesses again are given the same charge. They are to prophesy or to preach Christ to the nations. They have been given authority to do so. Keep that in mind. Now, I'm sure that we're all uh, on the edge of our seat wondering, who are these two witnesses? Well, if you grew up in the era that I grew up in, a popular view uh, by those who either read or watched the series, movies, Left Behind, was that uh, these two prophets would be two resurrected prophets. That they would possibly be Moses and Elijah. Some believe Enoch and Elijah. But the most popular view is that this is Moses and Elijah who have come back from the dead. Moses and Elijah are the most popular view because in verse 6 they are described as having power, listen to this, to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. You are well aware that the plagues that God inflicted upon Egypt were uh, inflicted by the men or used, God used Moses to inflict the plagues of Egypt upon Egypt. So, Moses is one of those options, right? Who do we know, we could say? Who do we know that inflicted plagues upon Egypt? Moses. This must be Moses. The shutting up of the sky so that rain would not fall. We know that as Elijah, Elijah as a judgment against the wicked for three and a half years, called upon God to shut up the skies and rain did not fall on the land for three and a half years. So, so this must then be Moses and Elijah. Remember that Moses and Elijah were found with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So based upon all of these so-called clues, the popular view is that this is Moses and Elijah returned from the dead in the last days. Uh, that is, during a certain seven-year period of tribulation to preach Christ and to call men to repent of their sin. Now... That's one popular view. We're not going to go with that view, obviously. So don't take notes as if this is the, this is the view, because it's not. Now, the other view is Enoch and Elijah. Now, the reason why Enoch and Elijah is because people will say, well, Enoch never 
die, but he was taken up. And Elijah never died, and he was taken up. And since it is appointed for all men to die once, and these two men have not died, they must come back so that they could die. Well, I think it's a less academic view, and it's also less plausible as well. So, let's get to the bottom of this, right? Who are these two witnesses? They are not two individuals. They are not two individual prophets. They are not Moses and Elijah, not Enoch and Elijah, not Peter and Paul, uh, and whoever else. Uh, Ringo and all the other ones. I am going to argue that these two witnesses are the whole community of faith that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was called not only to worship God, to grow in knowledge, faith, hope, and love, but the church, let me slow down, I feel like I'm going fast. The church is, is called to be a prophetic witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and imminent return to all nations. We are called to prophesy to the nations as John was called to prophesy to the nations concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are therefore, I believe, not two individual persons, but a whole community of faith. A holy city, a holy nation, a royal priesthood that are called to testify on behalf of Christ. And there are at least seven reasons why... These two witnesses represent the church and not two literal people. But here are just a few. Let's consider. These two witnesses, they are also called two olive trees and two lampstands. Each of these have the same identity, but John uses different examples to show the different ways in which the church is to witness, to be a witness. In verse 4, they are called lampstands. That's important. In which... Revelation chapter 1, John already identifies who the lampstands are. In Revelation chapter 1, there are seven, right? Seven lampstands. And John says the seven lampstands symbolize the church. So if in chapter 1, lampstands means church, in chapter 11, it would be kind of odd that they all of a sudden take on the identity of two individual prophets rather than the church, meaning this. So if in chapter 1 they're lampstands, in chapter 11 they're also lampstands. In chapter 1, if they're the church, in chapter 11 they're also the church. Does that make sense, yeah? It's important. If we didn't do anything else, that enough is important because John has already interpreted for us who these two lampstands are, who these two witnesses, these two olive trees are, they all have the same meaning. The prophets, the olive trees, and the lampstands, they're all one. John has already identified for us, lampstands is the church. They all have the same meaning. So we don't need to guess who they are. But let's do more work. In Zechariah chapter 4, religious Israelites are likened to lampstands. The lampstands are, were both housed in the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence was. The light that emanated from them, it represents God's presence. The lamps on the lampstand in Zechariah 4 are interpreted as rep representing God's presence or God's Spirit, who has empowered Israel to rebuild the temple in spite of opposition and to be a witness to the unbelievers. Oh, that's another example. So, now the new Israel, the church, as God's spiritual temple on earth, is to draw its power from the Spirit, the Divine Presence before God's throne, in its drive to stand 
against opposition and to continue to build God's temple, the church. When the gospel goes forth and believers or unbelievers are converted, the temple is still being built. The witnesses, again, they're called two olive trees. It's important that we establish that lampstands, again, and olive trees, they're one, they're the same. Just as with the identity of the two witnesses, there is much debate over the two olive trees. What are these olive trees? They symbolize, or the symbol of the olive tree comes from Zechariah once more, where the prophet has a vision of a rebuilt temple that is symbolized as a lampstand. Zechariah sees the olive tree, or the olive that provides, or the olive trees as um, providing oil for the lamps inside of the temple. Does that make sense? Uh, Zechariah sees within the temple a lampstand. But he also sees that there's an olive tree. There's two of them. And the olive tree is providing oil for the lamps to continue to burn in God's presence. These two men that were leading the way to rebuild the temple in Zechariah's time were Joshua, listen to this, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the king. They were leading this charge, even though they were opposed, they were leading the charge to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah sees Joshua and Zerubbabel as olive trees. They are the ones who God is using to provide oil so that the light of God in His presence will continue to burn. Zechariah says, the anointed ones are standing before the Lord of the whole earth. And now John takes that example from Zechariah and he applies it to the church. He takes that Old Testament example and he makes it applicable to the church. Who are we? Well, Joshua was a priest. Zerubbabel was a king. You, now in Christ, are priests and you are kings. And what has God called the priests and the kings to do? He's called us to be prophets to the nations. Saints, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. And in Christ, we are called to be prophets, priests, and kings. As a witness to the nations. Even when we are opposed by the unbeliever. We are the temple of God. That He has promised to establish, to protect, and to be with. As we witness for Him, even though we are opposed. Now, I say to you, we could spend much more time focusing on the identity of these two witnesses. But let's just summarize it as this. They are not two Old Testament prophets that have returned, but they are one church, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is called to be faithful witnesses for Christ in these last days. Now, here's a here's an interesting question that I think, if it's not coming up in your mind, at least it came up in mine. If these two prophets are actually just one, representing the church, then why would John describe them as two? Well, what's the purpose for two if it's just one? And, and isn't the number for the church seven rather than two? Seven lampstands, now all of a sudden we have two lampstands. This leads us into our second point. Second point, the witness of the two witnesses. The witness of the two witnesses. This is verses three through six. So we have identified these two witnesses, not as literal men, but as one church. And I think this fits with the flow of the chapter as well. God has measured or sealed the church as his own. And they are his people who are in his presence. They offer themselves before God and it is their reasonable act of worship. Offering ourselves to God is our reasonable act of worship. Yeah, God has not promised to protect our physical bodies, but... 
He's promised that his church will not lose our souls. We won't be lost to the, 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 uh, the deception of the evil one that is released in chapter 10. The church will be persecuted and, and opposed. Our physical lives will, will be lost, but we must be faithful witnesses of the gospel of Christ. Yes, we will be trampled underfoot by the ungodly for a period of time, but our confidence is found in this. God is with us. Are you with me? Okay. Now Christ intent, continues to encourage His church in spite of the opposition to be faithful witnesses because He has given us authority to do so. So why two if it's only meant to be one? Remember, what kind of witness is the church? Well, what kind of witness is, it, is the church? Are we witnessing to the world that God loves them in spite of their sin? That God accepts them? Just, listen to this, just as they are with no need to repent of sin. Are we saying to them, your sin is acceptable to God? Are we saying to the world that your lifestyles are acceptable to God? That, that God makes room for your sin? That God has a place even for your sin? That God requires no repentance of you. That, that God requires no confession of repentance. That God requires you not to turn from your evil ways, but to continue in your evil ways, and that God will bless your evil ways in spite of them being evil. Is, is that our witness to the world? If it was our witness to the world, this place would be filled. It would be lining up to get into here. In Numbers 35 and in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, there's something that you've heard before. The law requires something in order for someone to be condemned as guilty. The law requires two witnesses as a basis for judging an offense against God's holy law. This legal principle continues in the New Testament. You remember in Luke chapter 10 when our Lord sends out the 72 witnesses, right? He sends them out in groups of two. You remember that? He sends them out in groups that would be 35, 36 groups of two. Don't quote me on that. It's something like that. Some might say, when we ask, why, why did he send them out in groups of two? I remember when I used to first do evangelism on Union and Chester, uh, we made it the point, we've we got to go out in twos, because if we go out in twos, just in case one of you gets in trouble, the other can pull you out of that trouble. And in case someone gets into muddy waters, then you've got to back up. Well, that's, not reason, that's not the reason why they're sent out in twos. Even though that's a good idea, you should be sent out in twos, because you need a helper with you. That's not the reason why they're sent out in twos. Christ sends them out in groups of two, In order to continue the law that requires at least two witnesses to confirm or to testify or to be a witness to the breaking of God's law. It's good that we support one another as we witness the world has rejected Christ. They have, by the world's legal system, convicted Christ. They've done this. Convicted Christ as guilty. They put, the world put the Holy One of Israel to death. Likewise, the world has persecuted the church and sought by the world's legal system to convict her and put her to death. John testifies that the church is sent out. Not will be sent one day. The church is sent out. But is sent out as legal witnesses. To testify against the wicked for their rejection of God's Christ 
And Christ witnesses his church, the true Jehovah's Witnesses, throughout the earth. When we go, we are almost sent out as lawyers. As lawyers who are testifying against the wicked, you have broken God's law. By what standard? By God's standard. Who will judge us? Two witnesses who are calling you, unbelievers, to repent of your sin, for you have violated God's holy law. The rejection of Christian witness in the world, in the world, becomes the basis for the judgment of persecutors in the heavenly courts. Not on earthly courts, but in the heavenly court, the two witnesses, the church, who testifies against the world, has a basis for calling them guilty of their sin. Two witnesses are the church, and we prophesy today. Again, not someday in the future, today, here and now. Those of you who remember, who can recall the image of these two prophets as fire is going on around them, who are calling uh, heaven to, to close up and who are breathing fire out of their mouths, as some people believe. That is not two men coming back from the dead. That is you and I here today. And since Christ has risen from the dead, we are those prophets. You mean I'm a prophet? Do you not testify to the truth of Jesus Christ? You are declaring the truth of Jesus Christ. You are witnessing on behalf of Christ. But Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection is sufficient for our salvation. And that we are guilty of sin and must turn from sin in order to be saved. Lest we face the judgment of God that is soon soon coming. God's holy law and judgment will come for those who do not not repent of their sin. The point is, uh, we are to point all men, women, boys and girls to the only one who is able to save us from our sin, Christ the Lord. We are to witness that Christ is in fact the Savior of the world, the only way by which men can be saved. And we have been empowered to do so. God has given us authority to do so. Uh, We should not shrink back. We should not be silenced. We should not be afraid. We have been given authority. Therefore, we should be emboldened to share our faith. He has promised that His Spirit, His presence will be with us as we go forth and testify to the nations. Prophesy to the nations that Christ is the only way to be saved. You read of the Old Testament prophets and they, they, you, you, my wife and I just got done reading through Ezekiel. Oh no, we're reading in Ezekiel now. But you almost imagine them in, in the town square. Ezekiel in chapter 4 or 5 has been commanded to cut off his hair, to shave his head, and to take all of his hair and then in, 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 uh, in collections of, of three, or one third, one third, and one third, he is to uh, declare a message to the peoples. And you almost imagine him standing in the town square, shaving his head as everyone is watching the prophet, for they know he is a prophet. And he begins to use these examples of what God will do, what God is doing. And we say, I wonder if, I wonder what it would have been like to be that kind of a man. To just stand in the town square and to proclaim before all of these people without fear, without uh, any shame, the message of God. Could I ever do that? You've been given authority to do that. Maybe not in that kind of way, but you have been given authority to be a witness and to be a, a living witness to all unbelievers of what God has said. 
to all the unbelievers that if you don't repent of your sin, you will be lost. And Christ is the way to be saved from your sins. God has promised that He's with you when you do that. Imagine this, the Apostle Paul prayed this. This is what, uh, Paul, what, what do you need prayer for? How, how can we pray for you? You know that we ask each other that often, which is a wonderful practice. Brother, how can I pray for you? Sister, uh, how can I pray for you? Paul says, pray in Ephesians 6.19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known, Paul's asking for this, with boldness, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may, be, I may speak boldly. He's asking twice. As I ought to speak. Paul, an ambassador who was in chains, writing this letter to the Ephesians, already in chains, is asking, pray that God would open my mouth, that I would speak boldly. And don't forget to pray that God would help me to speak boldly. Dear saints, don't we need more prayer requests like that? Brother, how can I pray for you? Pray that I would be bold. Pray that I would be unashamed. Pray that I would not be silenced. I'm using this as a text. (laughs) Pray that I would not be silenced. (laughs) Don't all of us need to be more concerned with our witness? That uh, that, that all of us need to be more concerned with, with asking God for boldness? It's one of the reasons why we've been brought from death to life. To be as Paul requested twice. To be a bold witness. We're so afraid of, of offending people. We're so afraid that if I say something to him or to her, they're not, they're going to unlike me on Facebook. They're, they're not going to want to talk to me. My wife the other day was telling me, and forgive uh, this example, but I'll share it anyways. Uh, when the overturning of Roe v. Wade was, was brought forth, my wife just made one comment. One comment in support. And a person whom she thought was her friend wrote her a long, a long letter opposing her words, um, offending her in so many different ways, and they thought they were friends. And also, on top of that, did the worst thing that anybody could ever do in the 21st century, unliked her, unfriended her. My wife, I thought we were friends. I, I don't understand. Well, your Facebook friends, those don't count. They do. Sorry, I don't want to offend anybody. That Maybe they do. Our witness is not, is not always, though, with, with just words, is it? But also, it's in our deeds. It's in the Christ-like manner in which we live our lives. In the places where we most normally are every day. That our witness is sometimes not like Ezekiel. It's not like the Zacharias who stand in the town squares. It's not like the Isaiahs who, t- who stand in the town squares and, and who will proclaim a hear ye, hear ye. But for most of us, it is in the regular rhythms of our lives, isn't it? It's in our places of employment and in our conversations with our co-workers. It's in our homes, in the ways that we speak to our wives and to our children. It's in the, the, the patience or lack of patience that we have with our wives and with our children. We are all guilty. It's in the driving that we do from here to there. In the, the patience or lack of patience that we have with other pedestrians and other drivers and other cars and, and how we give them looks and what fingers we will use when we pass them by. It's in all of these things, isn't it? 
We are called to live in the world, but not to be of the world. Our goals and pursuits of this life, they must be noticeably noticeably different. Even having manners in the world towards the unbeliever means something. When you're going out to a restaurant and you're sitting there and the waitress or waiter is coming back and forth and and just to thank you, I appreciate your work. I, I appreciate all of... That goes so far. Even in the smallest things, there should be something different in the way that we approach people all together. We are to be living witnesses. And how are we to do that? In all sorts of facets of ways. We are called to be humble, to live beyond reproach, to be gentle, to be loving, to be meek, to be hardworking. You know those whom you work with that, that are lazy, that you see them from time to time taking advantage of being paid by the hour and finding places where they can sit when they should be working. You know how you, unbeliever or not, would look at a, at a so-called believer if they were doing things like that. You would say to them, You are manipulating this hourly wage system. But for those who work hard and are diligent and do so patiently, enduring their work and doing it with great joy because they're not working, as Ephesians says, not to their employer, they're working unto God. God has given me this job. Therefore, my attitude will be, thank you, God, for giving me this job. And I will be a witness with my work. We are to avoid gossip. We are to be peaceful. And in all these things, we are to be unashamed witnesses for Christ. We must be prayerful and mindful. Asking God that He would help us and asking saints that they would pray for us to be witnesses and to be faithful in our witness. To our wives, to our children, to our co-workers, to our friends and to our families, even in the way that we live. Not just in what we say. What we say is the gospel. You can't can't replace one for the other. But there should be a manner in which we live that they want to be intrigued. They want to know what is the reason why you do what you do. And then we preach the gospel. Our lives are are to be a witness of a transformed life. Because God has promised to be with us, He will embolden our witness. We are to witness with such boldness that even as we are opposed, we still continue to witness. Like like Ezekiel, who God said, speak whether they listen to you or not. Whether they listen to you or not, speak. And that means, and it gives sense to why the prophets, they prophesy in sackcloth. Two reasons. It's associated with mourning. Sackcloth is essentially a rag. It's a type of sad garment. It was a garment of the prophets. John the Baptist wore sackcloth as he called men to repent. And it's a garment of sorrow and it's also a garment of repentance. It can be a garment of sorrow for the one who is wearing it. And for the one who has repented, it's also a garment of sorrow because they have repented. They know that they have sinned and offended God. The testimony of the church through the testimony of the church, saints, there will be many who do not repent. How many times have you shared the gospel with your loving family members and friends and they still have not turned? We've talked about this before, haven't we? They still will not repent. They still will not turn from their sin. It causes us great sorrow. But there are also them, some who will repent. 
And I believe many who will repent. Many who will turn to Christ and who will believe. And they enter through sorrow, don't they? They enter through sorrow. They have sinned against God. But they also enter with joy. God has forgiven me of my sins. John says, if anyone wants to harm them, verse 5, fire flows out of their mouth and devours. Listen, look at that. It's, it's mouth, not mouths. Out of their mouth, the one mouth, and devours their enemies. So that if anyone, well, anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. If anyone wants to harm them, is another way of saying the church will be harmed because of their witness. They will be harmed because of their witness. The church is telling the world that they're guilty of sin. The church, by the authority of God that's been given to them by God, is telling the world that they must repent of their sin and turn to God. The message will not be happily received by the world. You know this. The church, the true church, again, does not have a message that, that you have been right all along. That your sin actually is okay with God. The world will oppose the church. For the church telling the world that they are actually not right with God. The world wants to hear, God's law is out of date. These laws no longer apply. Evolution to morality is what we need. No, the church tells the world, your life is an offense to God. It is not acceptable. There's a huge push right now for the sins of the world, the sodomy of the world, to be more and more embraced by even the church. And only the true church will say, no, this is an offense against God's law. And the true church, as we increasingly see, will be opposed by the world. The church has, is, and will undergo bodily, economic, political, and social harm, persecution. But we are commanded not to fear. Those who can kill the body but not the soul. It's been consistent. It's been consistent in Revelation, hasn't it, so far? You, you're going to hear this repeated again and again and again now. Uh, we, we, we're coming through the, the second recapitulation. Now we'll, we'll eventually get to the third um, recapitulation of these same things when we see the bold judgments in just a different way. And through all of it, God has promised He will not leave us. That He is with us. That our eternal covenant status with God will not be changed. That our names will never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life, of the book of life, regardless of the world's opposition. As the church is opposed in verse 5... Fire comes out of their mouths and devours their enemies. This is not, as one minister said, a supernatural ability that these two prophets have to, listen to this, literally incinerate anyone who opposes their message. We don't believe in fire-breathing prophets. I was amazed when I heard that. These prophets will have the ability to breathe fire out of their mouth and literally incinerate anyone who opposes their message. Gosh! That'll make people come to Christ. Rather, flow or proceeding out of the mouth in Revelation always symbolizes a message of judgment coming forth from the mouth. Always represents a message of judgment coming out of the mouth, not literal fire um, being able to be blown out of your mouth. Revelation 1, 2, 19, 21. John figuratively portrays Christ judging his enemies 
listen to this, by a, the means of a sharp sword proceeding from his mouth. Now, does Christ literally have a sword coming out of his mouth that he's chopping people down with? No. Instead, it's a message of judgment against the wicked. You and I, when we preach the gospel, it is a, a message of judgment, but also a message of salvation from judgment if one believes upon Christ. For the one who does not believe upon Christ, yes, judgment does proceed, fire does proceed from our mouths because they will literally, they will go to hellfire if they don't repent of their sin. The parallel is from Old Testament. Ezra 13, where the prophet is given a vision of the Son of Man, burning the wicked by fire proceeding from his mouth. It's symbolic. It's a rebuke against the wicked. They will be judged in hellfire for their refusal to repent if they don't repent. So it is with the church, to the unbeliever. The unbeliever who will not repent is storing up judgment for themselves in hell. From that perspective then, and I'm going to say this carefully, I'm only saying this because the theologians have used it, so therefore we'll use it. From, but from that perspective, there is a type of invincibility that the church has. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So when we preach, we need not fear. What superpower do you wish you had? I wish I could fly. I wish I was fast like the Flash. I, I wish I was uh, strong like Captain America or a young man like the Incredible Hulk, right? I want to say this very carefully. But God has granted you authority. He has given you His Spirit. And He has promised to be with you in spite of any opposition that comes as you proclaim the message of truth. And you need not fear those who can kill the body, but not your soul. The invincibility is, is a sense, I'm not afraid to die. Because I know that those who die don't actually die in Christ. But they live. Paul would say to, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do with a person like that? You either repent or you suffer the punishment that he is calling, that he says you will suffer if you don't repent. If anyone wants to harm them, they will be killed in this way. The judgment fits the crime. Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. John uses the prophets of old who likewise faced opposition, but they also would not be deterred in their witness. Verse 6, we're moving quickly now. These have the power, these prophets, the church, have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. For they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. For some, again, this is gifts displayed by these two prophets, literal gifts during, uh, that these two prophets have during tribulation, that they will literally cause the world to, uh, to experience all of the, the judgments found in the trumpets and in the seals. That they have the power to wreak havoc upon the world. I don't think that's the case either. 
Rather, just as the prophets of old pointed to the calamities that were surrounding them as God's judgment against them, so also the church can point to the seals and the trumpets and later the bowls and all the different forms of destruction and evidence against God or evidence that God's judgment is against the wicked. Meaning this, that when we see disasters, when we see um, wars and, and rumors of wars and diseases and famine and so on and so forth, we can say to the world, these are God's judgments against the wicked. Repent of your sin, lest you die in those kinds of destructions. Remember, for a saint to die in those destructions, they're not saved from those things. Their souls are. If there was an earthquake now, and we all perished, would we? Would it be an act of judgment against us? I, I hope not. But it would not be an act of judgment against us. And let's say the, the earthquake leveled Bakersfield. It wouldn't be a judgment against the righteous. It would be a judgment against the wicked. Even though the righteous perish with them, it's not a judgment of God against the righteous. It's against the wicked, even though the righteous will suffer too. We've not been promised protection from our physical bodies, but our souls will not be lost. And the church outside, who did not be part of the the, the earthquake, can say, God is judging the wicked. The righteous will, or the wicked will say, well, what about the righteous who died? We can say... Don't be afraid to say, the righteous are not promised physical protection. We're, we're promised protection from our souls. Those who died in that earthquake, their souls are not lost. But those wicked who died in that earthquake, their souls are lost. When the bowls and the trumpets, when they befall you, where will you be when you stand before God? Because the righteous who died there, they are with God, but not the wicked. It's the message that John is bringing across. Where will you be? And we can use these calamities as our advantage to call the wicked to turn to Christ. Number three. These will be moving much more quickly now. The war against the witnesses, which is against the church. Verses 7 through 10. When they have, listen to this phrase, the first phrase, when they have finished their testimony. When they have finished their testimony tells us that there will be a time when we will have a final message. The church will have completed her role in bearing witness to Christ before the world. We have been sealed. We've been measured. This guarantees our success and it guarantees our victory when the final Amen is said. God has promised to establish us and secure us. Praise be to God. And here, John sees a final intensification and severity of persecution, a type of climax that leads ultimately to the return of Christ. Things don't get better. We're seeing that, don't we? Since Christ rose from the dead, there have been pockets throughout the world of intense persecution throughout uh, on the church, and now it's it's becoming more global around the world. It's been intensifying, and at any time, Christ can return. We believe that more will be saved. But as the return of Christ draws near, the morality of this world will not get any better. In Revelation 6, the saints have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony of which they maintain. They cry out under the altar of God for God to be holy and true. And they ask this question, how long? The answer from the throne from God is until the number of their fellow servants and fellow brethren who were to be killed, even as they had, listen to this word, 
would be completed also. Same completed is what we see now here in verse 7. When they have finished or completed their testimony, the beast arises. First mention of the beast, uh, we find him in Daniel chapter 7. We'll find him more as we uh, move throughout Revelation. It is the final wicked kingdom of the earth that persecutes and seemingly defeats the people of God. John sees this prophecy fulfilled as the world's persecution of the church continues and will bring it to an end. Now, which kingdom? Right? We all want to know, which kingdom is it? Is it America? Will America become wicked like all the other kingdoms, nations? Is it China? Uh, I'm very careful about how I say this. <clears throat> America is not a holy nation. Never has been and never will be. For America to be a holy nation, everyone within the nation must be holy and saved. China is not a a wicked nation. Now there is Russia. Because there are believers in China. And there are believers in Russia. In order for a nation to be completely wicked and completely holy, it must be completely one or the other in that nation. There are two nations. There are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of the world. There are two nations. There is a royal nation, a holy nation, and there is a wicked nation. The unbeliever and the believer. That is the only kingdoms that there are in this world. So if we're wondering, which kingdom will it be? Which nation, which which kingdom is, is John talking about? He's talking about the world. And he uses two different nations and then one more. Sodom. Sodom no longer exists. Not physically, but spiritually. Sodom is all over the world. And he uses Egypt. Egypt still exists. But Egypt is a place of oppression. And it's all over the world. And then he will later use Babylon. Babylon is a place of idolatry. And it's all over the world. John is using these three nations to describe one wicked nation that is opposing the holy nation of God. And John points to a type of oppression through Satan's kingdom that will be inflicted upon God's kingdom, the church throughout the world. The beast arises in Daniel. I hope there's no misunderstanding of what I've just said. And if you want to argue with me afterwards, I'm okay with that as well. I won't argue with you. The beast arises just like the beast that we saw arise in chapter 10. And he arises to make one final onslaught against the saints before Christ returns. This is going to be repeated in Revelation 17. The bodies are in the streets. It's not to say that there will will not be any more witnesses left. That there will not be no more church. but, But there will be a type of indignity... As the world persecutes the church. We may not have seen persecution like that here. But trust that such indignity and opposition takes place in other countries like Sudan. And like Iran. Where they leave Christians in the streets to scare other Christians. You had better not say another word about Christ or this will happen to you. 
And yet the church in Iran will not be silenced. And the church in the Sudan will not be silenced. Though their bodies lay in the streets, the church will not, not be destroyed until Christ has determined the final message to be preached. There will still be witnesses. The church will appear to have no voice. The church will appear to be silenced. There will be such disdain and disrespect for the church. There is, I should say, such disdain and such disrespect for the church. But they won't even allow them to be put in tombs. They will celebrate over the church. Believing that the church has finally been silenced. The world will celebrate an apparent defeat of the church. And how will they see all this? I think it's verse 10 or so. All the world will see it. John does not have in mind the world being able to see all of this destruction by way of satellite television. John writing in Revelation is not foreseeing a day when oh, there'll be cable TV. Of course, there'll be cable TV. That's how everybody in the world is going to see what's going on. If that's the case, then it's only been since 1920 or so that we've been able to have kind of worldwide access to one another. Rather, the church that was at one time localized, the church that was one time in one place is now no longer localized, but we are all over the world. The body of Christ is everywhere. And the body of Christ will be persecuted and the body of Christ will be laying in the streets. And the world will see the body thinking that she has been defeated, just like the Jews and the Romans celebrated when they believed that Christ had been destroyed, that Christ had been finally defeated. There are laws being set in motion now, saints. And I don't mean to get current events on you, because it's been like that all the way, all, in different countries. In Canada, you cannot preach conversion. It's against the law. I'm sure that that will continue in other nations. To preach as a witness for people to convert and turn to Christ is illegal. But we will not be silenced, will we? The wicked will rejoice, believing that they have... They don't know, no longer have to hear the message of the witnesses. But praise be to God that they will not have the final word. Final verses... Verses 11 through 13, and we will close with this. The resurrection of the witnesses. The witnesses, the church, we are opposed and persecuted unto death. Those who dwell on the earth rejoice, believing that they have somehow conquered the church and her testimony. But their celebration is short-lived. Just like Christ conquered over his enemies by raising from the dead after three days, so the church after a time they also will be raised, just as Christ was resurrected, so the church will be resurrected and we will be raised to new life before the entire world, it comes from Ezekiel's prophecy chapter 37 God's restoration of Israel out of Babylonian exile, the nation is uh, likened or likened to corpses which only dry bones remain and the restoration to the land and to God will be like bones coming back to life. The witnesses in Revelation will be seen as slain. And just as they were saw 
uh, seen as being put to death, they will be saw seen as being brought back to life. The resurrection of the church. We will be resurrected. If you would, First Thessalonians chapter four in closing. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse sixteen. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those, we who are alive, will remain and will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with Him, or be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The church will raise to life. The final trumpet found in the next chapter, or the next verses actually, next chapter. It will blow. Chapter 12. No, remaining verses, sorry. We'll, we'll blow and the saints will be raised to heaven. The oppressors will look on. There will be a great earthquake. Final judgment begins. And it harkens back to Revelation 6.17. The great day of the wrath of God has come. Who was able to stand? The resurrection of the church will be the vindication of the church. Now listen to this. This resurrection, this earthquake, um, the, the wicked being in terror, it all happens at the exact same time. It's simultaneous. So we must not think of these things, even though it's presented as being successive. First we rise, we're up in heaven, the wicked are looking... And then an earthquake happens. Some people die. Some people are surviving. The next verses, then God comes in judgment. All of this is happening simultaneously. We read it as successively, but it is a simultaneous event. The final event of God's vindication of Himself and the church. Is there a rapture that the wicked will see, have time to repent, and turn to God? No. The time for salvation is now. The Bible says that they see and give glory to God. It doesn't say that they repent. It is, and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord moment. They will have no choice. They will all be brought to their knees. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ must reign until all his enemies are put to death. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. As the church is resurrected, Christ shows his victory over death, the defeat of death, making way for the new heavens and new earth. The sounding of the trumpet elicits praise, praise from heaven. And again, every knee bows and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are seeing the arrival of Christ, the raising of the church, and the judgment of the wicked, all happening in the twinkling of an eye. All at the same time. And the point that we must all take as we close is that through all of this, God is with us. I, I, I encourage you, don't take what I have just said as being something imaginary. Do not take what I've just said as something being simply a fairy tale or something that's meant only for the movies. Is your faith in God? Is your faith in Christ? 
then this is promised to those of you who are in Christ. There will be a time when we are raised to life and when we join God in heaven. And there will be a time when the wicked are judged. What do we do in the meantime? We be faithful witnesses. Bold witnesses. Because God has given you authority to be a witness. Because He's promised to be with you, to be with you, you can, you can be bold and not fear whatever opposition comes against you. What if they kill you? God has promised to raise you to life. And in doing so, so He shows His victory over death. The sting of death is swallowed up in the victory of Christ. To God be the glory. Let's pray.